that he purchased an everlasting inheritance, reconciliation, fully satisfying the justice of God. And we also looked in paragraph 6 that although the price of redemption was paid by Jesus Christ on the cross truly and completely, that same grace was offered to Old Testament saints. And I would ask, how was it offered to Old Testament saints? How is the grace of the New Covenant offered to Old Testament saints? That's right. Promises were put forward to them, and they were to believe them by faith. And I really think that that's the overarching thing that we should see. Promises were given to them. But those promises took different forms. There were verbal promises from the mouth of God. For example, Genesis 3.15, that God promised that he would send a, a, um, a son of the woman, a child of the woman, to crush the head of the serpent. Well, what are some other explicit promises that we could think of? God gave to the Old Testament saints. Verbal. Noah. Yeah, we, we have that. But that would be, even though there is a promise there, it's a promise through type almost, right? It's a promise that God does save his people. And we see in the New Testament that baptism is an anti-type, that the flood was a type of baptism, which now saves us through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, what other types do we have? That are promises of the gospel to come. Yes. Yeah, and this is a, a, just a clear verbal promise that in Galatians 3, when it recounts what God said to Abraham, that in you all nations should be blessed, it says the gospel was preached to Abraham, saying, okay, that he's going to reverse the curse, okay? What, what other way? We have types, verbal promises, brother. That's right. That's right. There, there's going to be a, a son given, but that son is going to come from the tribe of Judah, specifically from the offspring of David as well. And we also have it through the sacrifices. Um, we could call it the sacraments of the Old Testament system, that Jesus Christ was the substance of those sacrifices, if believed by faith, that we need a mediator that's going to die and shed his blood for me. And we know that because when we come to the New Testament... What do we see John the saying in John 1? Behold the Lamb of the God. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Using explicit language from the Day of Atonement. You might recall there were two goats being brought forward. One's hands were laid upon it and it was slaughtered. And the other had its sin transferred of Israel to it. And it was sent into the wilderness. The sin of the world, the sin of Israel was taken away. And Jesus is that Lamb. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of Israel. The world. Okay. And so, through faith, the believing Israelite would have grace, the grace of the new covenant, communicated through those things. Promises, types, and sacrifices. Paragraph 7, and I struggle with this, so if I'm a little all over the place, try to stay with me because I, I don't know how to put these things together in a clear, logical way. Um, paragraph 7 seems a little bit different from what we're talking about. Christ, in the work of mediation, acts according to both 
natures, by each nature doing what is proper to itself. Yet, by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. Now, this is a hard doctrine to understand. And as we've talked about, the Trinity is a very difficult doctrine to understand. The hypostatic union is a very difficult doctrine to understand. And what this paragraph is really trying to teach us is the carefulness by which we hold the hypostatic union. But before we get there, I just want us to consider first this first part of the sentence... That Christ in his work of mediation acts to both nature, each doing what is proper to itself. Okay? So, Christ as God and man, each nature works in what is proper to itself. Examples of that. What did Christ's human nature do that is only proper to the human nature to do? Eat and drink. Was tired. Right? Slept. Suffered. Right, exactly. He was passive. He was... a uh, Passionate. He, he, had a, he was acted upon as a patient, and God isn't acted upon in that way, right? What else did Jesus do that's only proper to humans? He grew in wisdom and stature and the knowledge of God and man, right? He died. He died. Now, what's proper... ...to the being of God in Jesus' work of mediation. To me, this is a harder question. Maybe it shouldn't be, but it is. Yes. So, in Christ's work of mediation... okay, ...which is not only... ...we only think of priestly roles, typically. Okay? It's prophet, priest, and king. What role in his mediation is proper to the God nature... Okay. I know. But it's still the God nature. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that's a good point, brother, because we don't want to so separate the Trinity when we say that He did these works through the Holy Spirit. I, I believe John Owen would say that the attributes of God of Jesus's God nature were communicated to Him. Through the Holy Spirit. And I know that gets weird. But we don't have to hold it so tightly that we're unable to say that the miracles were the work of the divine nature. Okay? What other works? He rose from the dead. Yes. Yeah. He was, uh, he rose from the dead and this testified in Romans 1, which I'll read because I'm going to mess it up if I don't read it. Um, Romans chapter 1. And you could take this in a number of different ways, but I can see how both are plausible. Notice, he's talking about the gospel, and in verse 3, Paul says, concerning his son, who was descended from David, and the Greek word there is born, or made, rather, made from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Many would take that he was declared to be the son of God by the spirit, that the contrast and the parallel of that is his flesh. He was the son of God, the son of David according to the flesh, but the son of God according to the spirit. That his resurrection from the dead, it testified to his divine nature. Brother. 
That's a, that, that is a key point. He bore the entire wrath of God of all of God's people and yet was not totally consumed and destroyed by that. If this was merely the human nature taking upon himself the full wrath of God, there, there's no possibility that it would be completed, especially in a temporal length of time. Okay? That's right. That's right. Yes, yes, very good. Miss Rachel. It's true. He understood the thoughts and intentions of those around him. And again, this is close to the miracles, right? Communicated to him by the Holy Spirit, but still divine working that he knew the thoughts and intentions of people's hearts. And John 2 says he didn't entrust himself to man. Why? Because he knew what was in man, right? So... Another work of mediation as king. He rules and reigns over all things. He is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent in his kingly office. Also his prophetic office as he draws all people to himself. He preaches every time the gospel is preached by all of you, by me, by Joey. Anytime the gospel is preached, he is our prophet and he brings people in. As witnessed by Ephesians chapter 2, where he writes to this Gentile congregation, and you remember what he says, he says, he preached peace to you who were far off and you who were near. These Ephesians in Asia Minor never saw Jesus in his physical body, but Paul is confident to say, he preached peace to you, right? And so, we can say that Christ in his natures, His two natures in one person works, each according to its own nature properly. But the point of this text is that we're not to take those two natures, even though we can divide up Christ's work, so to speak, in between them, that we don't speak of his person as one. Okay. Now, I know this is difficult to understand. The reason this is in our confession is because of two 5th century heresies, one known as Eutychianism and Nestorianism. And if you don't remember that, don't feel bad because I have to look it up every time I think about it, okay? Eutychianism and Nestorianism. Both of these were teachers in the church. Eutychus and Nestorius were teachers in the church, but both of them denied the hypostatic union. Eutychius, by saying that Jesus Christ is not God and man, but he's a third thing, okay? That the God nature and man's nature mixed together. Much like if you took ink and put it into water and mixed it up. It's no longer pure water. It's no longer pure ink. It's something completely different. Eutychus taught that Jesus Christ coming be something else entirely. God nature, man nature mixed together in some way. Brother, you're, you're reading my thoughts. Yes, that's, exa- that's exactly right. So, not all Mennonites agree to this because they don't have confessions. So, it's hard to know what they believe about certain things. But Minno Simons, the leader of the Mennonites, the, the, Men- the first Mennonite, you could say, was believed in what was called the celestial flesh. That Jesus didn't have a really true human body. He had a celestial flesh to him. Okay. Nestorius, on the other hand, the opposite extreme, taught that Jesus Christ was not one person with two natures, but he was two persons with two natures. Okay? 
He was God and he was man, but these are really two different persons even. They're not united together. That's the thrust of our paragraph to closely guard this reality. Because if you read passages in the New Testament without this, you might come out with a Eutychian view of who Jesus was. That is that there's a God and man nature mixed together to make some new thing. And these are the texts that we have in our our Bible. Notice John chapter 3. John chapter 3. That sometimes because Jesus Christ's two natures are under one person, sometimes the scripture talks about the, the, the uh, <laughs> I don't want to say the wrong, the opposite nature doing the work. Such as in John chapter 3. This is a text that you have read many times and never really read like this, probably. Okay? But it is interesting to think about. Um, John 3.13 says this. Him, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, he says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. Who? The Son of Man. Right? We would say, well, the Son of Man didn't descend from heaven. Right? He, he was in his God nature. He came down and was in the Virgin Mary's womb and he united himself to the human nature. But John 3.13 says, The Son of Man came down from heaven. Right? And so this possibly leads Minno Simons to conclude that he had a heavenly flesh about him. Okay? Likewise, in Acts chapter 20, in verse 28, we have the work that is done on the cross denominated not to the man, but to God himself, specifically in the shedding of blood. Acts chapter 20 In verse 28, where Paul, preaching to the Ephesian elders, says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he, God, obtained with his own blood. Okay? The issue is what? God, in his divine nature, we all confess, does not have Okay, does not have a body like we have. He is invisible without body, parts, and passions. He does not shed his blood. The point of the confession then is that Christ's nature is so united together under his personhood that sometimes the scripture can use the, the opposite language to speak of him rightly. We can say that God's blood was shed because Christ's person is united together so closely, okay? Now, the question is, why is this important? Because we might think this is an unimportant doctrine that really just warps our minds and we can talk about other things, but it is very important. And I'd ask you, why? Why is this an important doctrine for the gospel? Yeah. He has to be fully man. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah. First of all, he has to be fully man. Hebrews 2 tells us he was in every way made like his brothers, yet without sin. He was not a third thing that was created that was half God, half man in some way. He truly was man. And that's all of our confidence, right? I can look into heaven and have confidence in what Jesus Christ has done for me because he truly represents all that I am in my mind, my body, and my soul. Jesus Christ was human. Any other ways that we can think that this is, a, this is an important doctrine? Amen. Amen. Yes. Amen. Yes. That, that, that's absolutely true. And we have to, on the other side of things, the, the more Nestorian error that he has two persons, okay? Two natures with two persons. They have each, they're totally separate from each other. We have to confess that he really is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And when the disciples saw him, the apostles saw him, and they said, my Lord and my God, they weren't just speaking to half of him. He's God. Okay? He's one person. He's God. Blessed forever. Amen. Okay. Now, (laughs) do we have any questions about that? I'm sure. Yes. Yes. Yeah, no, and that, that's a good question. And Brother Caleb, what he said was, how do we put ourselves under the text? And if I, I'm going to try to interpret that a little bit, we've been talking about it for a while. How do we read the Bible in such a way that this is meant to transform me and to create in me praise to God? Rather than just saying, what does this mean and how can I parse that and understand it theologically? Okay? And those two things aren't separate, but sometimes we can separate them. So, how do we... Let's just go to those texts. John, chapter 3. This is the harder one for me. So, we'll see. Let's just read that paragraph. Let's do an experiment. I think it's a good experiment. How do we read this text knowing what we know now after we've heard this? How does this cause us to know Christ better, to worship God more? Verse 9, Nicodemus said to them, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Okay? I think that what we notice here is that we might be tempted to a Nestorian error if he said, 
God came down from heaven. The Son of God came down from heaven. And the Son of Man must be lifted up. But Jesus so unites His nature together as God and man that we can say that that person that came down from heaven to reveal God to us. Nobody's ascended into heaven to tell us who God is. But Jesus tells us heavenly and earthly things. This same God and man will be lifted up. I don't know if that helps. That's a hard one for me. Um, Brother. Yes. 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 Yeah, I, I agree. So it, it highlights his prophetic ministry. It highlights his sacrifice for us, I think. Um, right, he's talking past tense, though, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Amen. Yes, I, I, I agree. Any other thoughts about that? How we can, how this text should cause us to praise God. Okay, Acts. I'm going to Acts. And uh, i got to make a decision. Acts chapter 20. And again, verse 28. Um, Because I I don't think it even needs context for us to see the import of what's being said here. Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. I mean, what's Paul trying to do here? He's trying to, oh, sorry. He's trying to impress upon the mind of the elders the weight of their job, isn't he? That your job is to care for the church of God, and this is not just a voluntary society of people that meet together, even a voluntary society of people that meet together because some person has died, right? There are many of those. Oh, I don't can't think of it off the top of my head, but I'm sure that there are many associations of people that come together to remember the death of a, uh, somebody that died for a political cause, something like that. But he impresses upon the elders' minds that take care of the church of God, which God obtained with his own blood. God obtained with his own blood. It's a precious thing. Nothing more precious than the blood of God's Son. And Paul amplifies that here by speaking of the united nature of Jesus Christ as divine and human that we can truly say that God shed his blood. We can say in a sense that we probably have to explain that God was crucified, that God raised from the dead 
if we know that Jesus Christ is God and man. I think it's very similar, I mean, I think to say God shed his own blood, what he's getting at is death. Not just that he bled, right, but he shed his blood to death, to the point of death. He took the curse for us, right? He shed his blood to death. I I think it's saying the same thing. I'm happy to be wrong, though. Um, I'm never happy to be wrong, but I'm I'm willing to be wrong. How about that? (laughs) Anything else? So, <laughs> uh, that, that took longer than I thought, which is good. I think it's good to consider and for us to think about. Um, so, as we think of this, we ought to be moved to praise God because God gave us, again, a perfect mediator who is true God and true man, and that those two natures are so united together that when we think of Jesus Christ, we think of man, we think of God united together in one person. We can truly say, God is with us. God came to us. God came down from heaven. God suffered. God died for me, knowing that he made a way for that by uniting to himself a human body in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Okay. Brother. That's right. That's Amen. Yes. And that that is what... These are 5th century heresies. And after this, I believe the definition of Chalcedon, that's what they came from. It came from Eutychianism and Nestorianism. They came together to to come up with a statement that would guard the mystery. Because nobody can understand this or fathom it much like the Trinity. And so what we're not trying to do is explain every way how this works... But we're trying to say, this is what the Bible says, and this is how it can be faithfully formulated. Not trying to understand everything, but to, to apprehend what the Bible says. Right? To say no more than the Bible says, but this is as much as we can confidently say that the Bible says. Brother. Amen. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It's not celestial flesh. Because my first thought would be, well, I'm not going to make it there. He's something different than me. Right? How can he represent me? All it does is introduce doubt into the mind of the Christian, where Hebrews chapter 2 and other places are meant to take doubt away. 
Because he's truly God and truly man. He's fully man. Um, I'm just repeating myself. Do we have any other thoughts, questions? Okay, I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we, we come before you and we thank you that, God, the gospel's perfect. In, in every way, in ways that we cannot understand ever. We, can't, we cannot comprehend them. Um, but Lord, we, we see something of the truth of it in your word. We, we thank you that we can, through this formulation of what the Bible teaches say that Jesus Christ is God and man. God lives with us. And man took my punishment. Man satisfied the justice of God. The offended party is the one who suffered as man. Um, God, we, we love You. You are wonderful. And what a, what a praise it will be for You now and all of eternity. When we can consider... For 10,000 upon 10,000 years, the perfection of what you decreed and how to save your people. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We thank you most of all for your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.